I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Battleground Podcast. It's awesome to have you here. Um, This week, we have an incredible guest. His name is Rich Barris, uh, a.k.a. the People's Pundit. He is a pollster that I look to a lot both during my uh, 2020 congressional race and uh, 2022 Senate race and thereafter. Rich is unique because, I, I mean, I think, because not only does he have a solid methodology, and when you're polling, its methodology is really important to have the proper sample size, the right questions, you know, look at the right cross tabs, things like that. Rich has all of those things on lockdown, but What I also like about Rich is that he understands the cultural moment that we're in right now. And so many pollsters uh, exist inside the Beltway in Washington, and they're really, quite frankly, out of touch with what is going on in congressional districts and and in states really all across the country. Well, Rich comes from, you know, a, a middle class blue collar family, knows what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck and really goes out of his way to understand the issues that matter to people uh, and the cultural, really historical cultural moment that we're in right now. That's that's why I like him. And so this episode, we talk about everything political. Uh, we do a postmortem on 2022, why the red wave did not happen. And we look forward to 2024. We have a look at both the Republican ticket with Ron DeSantis now in the race. What does that presidential uh, what does that presidential race look like in 2024? Can Trump win? I think he can. I look forward to, uh, to you hearing what Rich says about all that. But we also look at the Democrat ticket. So I, I think Rich is great. I think you'll like the show. Um, and as always, if you're listening to this or you're watching this, like, please subscribe to the show. Like, we we need it. It helps us. Leave a review, comment on social media, sh- share screenshots on Instagram. If you like the show, I'll reshare them in my story. Um, this show is is really for you, and, and none of it's possible without you. So as always, thank you so much for your enduring support. I'm I'm always deeply grateful for it and humbled by it. Um, God bless you all. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rich. The People's Pundit, Rich Barris, joins me today on the show. Rich, thank you for, for coming on. I um, I turn to you anytime I, I, I'm looking to get a sense of where we are as a country from a polling standpoint. And so thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's good to be here. <laughs> so there's so much to talk about. I have so many questions for you, but one of the things that jumped out at me right away, Rich, like when you read your bio or you do any bit of research into you, is that you're an army guy. I'm an army guy. So I got to ask you, how did you make the jump from a guy who 
volunteered to serve the country to polling in one of the most hostile, thankless professions on the face of the earth. <laughs> you, you know, uh, I think you'll probably understand this better than most people would, Sean. So um, after 9-11, uh, which I was still kind of young when 9-11 happened, but after 9-11, the army started a program uh, called the 18 X-ray program. And I did want to serve in some capacity. My grandfather was in the army. My godfather was in the army. And I was thinking about the Navy, thinking about maybe SEALs because I, back then I used to do martial arts. And my, my one of my instructors, his father was, is a big name guy. A lot of people probably know who he is, but Jim Watson, Patches Watson. So they, they were you know <laughs> trying to nudge me to the Navy. But I had a you know familial connection with the army, and I also like the mission of Green Berets a little bit better. I like the idea of going in there and 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 you know just not in and out, but you know staying with these people, teaching them how to defend themselves. Uh, but I you know I got hurt. I did a lot of the hard stuff. Uh, that's not much to tell. I got you know got hurt, and like a lot of other guys, when I got out, I really didn't know where to go, and actually had a really hard time readjusting because I don't have to tell you the army is when you're happy in the army and you love what you do in the army. It's the best job in the world. It's the best life in the world that you'll get. You'll have the best friends you'll ever have, you know, in your life uh, when you're when you're doing that. So it's really it was difficult for me to adjust. Um, I did always have numbers in my background. Right. So even in the army, I wanted 18 Charlie, which is engineering. And I, it was pretty easy to get with aptitude uh, and my and my background. But I didn't when I got out, I did not immediately jump into politics. I actually was uh, in, in a host of different financials. We took IP, we did IPOs for a while. We did, uh, you know, ma portfolio management. I ended up, you know, being a, a local financial advisor and I just wanted something different. And I was always involved in politics and again, you know, I trying to find what I'm going to do after the army. I wound up in Florida and I ended up at the University of Florida, where if you love politics and you and you love uh, this this industry in general, it's a good place with the election project there. And on your spare time, nerds are like trying to develop uh, election <laughs> projection models. Right. And I had the, a, a lot of people, a lot of a, a lot of good professors around one in particular that really sent me on this direction. He was like, look, you know, you've been uh, a numbers guy your whole life. Uh, instead of getting a useless, you know, bachelor's of arts degree or whatever you're here trying to do, um, this I'm, I think you may appreciate this. And really, the rest is history. And I did look at that time. You know, you had the crystal ball, Larry Sabato, right? So you had, uh, you know, the Nate Silvers of the world were still not really that big at that point. So we were, you know, doing this, you know, for a while, just... I know it sounds stupid, but kind of for fun. And I always, you know, volunteered. I remember my first presidential election volunteering for that. And that was in Jersey. So, I mean, I've been doing this for a while. Um, and then, <laughs> but not as a profession. And then, I, you know, I, I'm like a lot of people and I changed my career midway. But, you know, when you're coming out of the army, you don't really have a plan. I didn't. Going into the army, I thought, that's I'm, I'm a soldier. I'm going to be a soldier. I love it. So, you know, I stumbled <laughs> into this because I didn't have a plan B. For getting hurt, you know, I just didn't, and uh, I'm glad I did because I think this this business uh, basically saved my life, kept me focused. You know, it, it wasn't an easy road, but uh, I had a knack for it. Well, I mean, you clearly believe in it, and you can tell uh, by the way that you 
that one, you back your numbers and you mix it up with people on Twitter defending yourself all the time. I mean, yeah. this is what I mean by by polling. I mean, politics, but especially polling um, is a very difficult place for people to live and, and to operate and to work because, you know, as you saw going into to 2016 with President Trump coming down the escalator um, and really tr- the Trump derangement syndrome of the media, like I think when President Trump became the nominee in 2016, people lost their minds and lost a lot of faith in, you know, the the conventional mainstream media. Uh, yeah. But also people lost a ton of faith in pollsters because, I mean, you look at some of the models back then, Rich. The, I mean, I think everybody thought that Hillary Clinton was going to run away with this thing. I even think Hillary thought she was going to run away with it. And I always <laughs> think back, I mean, as as evidenced by her thinking she was going to run away with it, the picture of her happy birthday to this future president, which she still gets trolled on <laughs> like to this day. But so people don't trust pollsters. Yeah. And so clearly you found your niche in not just the numbers, Rich, and this is what I'm building to, like understanding where people are in this cultural moment that we live in today. I, I, I like to pride myself, Sean, in still being a part of the process too. And I think I do that and a lot of others don't. I have literally polled people myself who will say, wait a minute, I think I know who this is. Is this really him? You know, they don't expect that. They <laughs> expect the call center. I constantly monitor employees who give the interviews uh, I want to listen. I think that my background, not being born with a silver spoon in my mouth and, you know, coming from a working class area, first in New York, then in New Jersey. I think I heard what people were saying in 2015 and 2016, but it, a little differently than other people did. So I came from an area. I remember the the local door manuf- and door and window manufacturing company. If you didn't have a job, you could always go to Suburban and they'll give you 12 or 14 bucks an hour until you find something new. I remember that closing down. I remember my friends going to vocational schools and not being able to use it because there were illegal immigrants on the corner of 7-Eleven that businesses would stop and pick up and they could do it for $6 an hour instead of paying my friends an actual wage that they trained for. And so I think my experience made me, you know, allowed me to listen to these people and not dismiss their concerns or their grievances outright. And I also came in this at a time where I don't know why the media had for so long hid this from people, but every, even 04, the exit polling debacle in 04, there had been a problem with polling for a long time. And people just weren't told about it. And I think that it didn't come into everyone's attention until they blew a presidential race, which just doesn't always happen. Gallup gave up in 2012 because they predicted Mitt Romney was going to win. And they they flatly said, we're out of the horse race business. This is too hard. And we don't think it's responsible uh, to do moving forward. In 2015 and 16, we were totally different than everybody else. We changed how we did our modes of collection. We're not always live calling people. There are just some people who will not stay on the phone with an agent or an interviewer on you know a 20 minute call to be interviewed about their political beliefs they're not going to do it so you have to reach them other ways and but even still and this is why we're always on twitter mixing it up because there are records we can defend ourselves right so everyone's going to miss once in a while but without a doubt i'm i'm 
I, I, my record, I stand by it because I'm proud of it. In, 25, in 2016, though, we still did underestimate Trump. We did think he was going to win. But, you know, in Ohio, our final poll was like three points, Trump plus three. Right. So we still had to adjust moving forward, obviously missing some voters. But they were stubborn, Sean, and wouldn't do it. And someone like me is not welcome, you know, in this, in this <laughs> well, industry. It's 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 interesting because you talk about coming up in a working class area. I did as well. I, I come from a family of Western Pennsylvania Union Democrats. And when you come from that background, it just shapes the way that you view the world. And, you know, every like you know everybody in your neighborhood you know where they work you know when someone loses their job yep. and when that happens you know how that affects families so and i think what we have now rich and correct me if i'm wrong is you have a lot of pollsters that are sort of they're inside the beltway they work for consultants they all think the same way um and it's been that way for a long time and i and i feel like that's why they get it wrong you know, and, and so it's it, it, polling can't just be about the empirical data and the numbers. I mean, obviously, methodology and sample size is, is really, really important. And how you ask questions is really, really important because how you ask a question is can determine how someone answers, really. But not understanding the trials and tribulations of where the people are at a specific moment in time is has to be part of it. And so I don't know how I mean, certainly uh, there's no substitute for being on the ground, running a campaign and yeah. putting your finger on the pulse of a congressional district or a state. Yeah. But how can pollsters or how have you been able to tap into where people are, say, in the Rust Belt, where, you know, as of this moment, Donald Trump has a what seems to be a, a commanding lead on Ron DeSantis in the critical Rust Belt? Yeah. You know, they say that polling's part art and part science, right? It's a lot of art. And I, I love history. I love uh, not just looking at where the state is now and in your state, for instance. You know, I love where it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I think, and I don't mean to pick on them, but I, I, I did use this as an example uh, when I was asked by the Washington Post recently. If you're Nate Cohen, you know, at the New York Times, and you're sitting at your cubicle every day, Inside your office, you're not getting out, you're not seeing, you're not taking the pulse of anybody. Uh, you, you think calling them on the phone is enough and you, you're not realizing, by the way, that you're going to reach certain people like that. Depending on what mode you're using to reach people, you're going to reach different people because these different groups respond to different modes at different rates. Not me. There's no substitute for, uh, you know, doing it myself and appreciating the history and the different ancestral voting patterns. So if you're him and you call like Green County, Pennsylvania, for instance, and this, he did this in 2020 and he had Biden leading Trump there without a second thought. Now, what Green County is, yeah, there are a lot of registered Democrats, but Gr Trump carried Green County uh, against Hillary Clinton. It's ridiculous to think that Biden's going to be ahead there by 60 plus percent. But, you know, he doesn't realize he probably called the only public uh, library, you know, the, the the only Democrat who works at the public library in Greene County that still was going to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. It, it didn't dawn on him that that uh, is wrong because they don't really understand Americans or at least the Americans that are between the coastal areas where they work and they live. Right. And they have their friends and their social groups. They don't care about that and may even to be, if we're being honest, 
they may even despise those people and, you know, think at least hope that they're not that significant of the population when in fact they are. Right. So uh, I, I think that you, you really can't lose. It can't become all about the numbers. If it does, then you're going to miss out. And I didn't want to give away some some secrets, but there have been things even anybody is subjected or can be or fall victim to your own biases and your own, uh, you know, wishful thinking. And we have in place some safeguards for that that have really you know, we've te- everyone's going to test at some point and we have them in place. They seem to be working again. Everyone misses once in a while. But for the most part, we you know, you have to know yourself and new, you, human nature and you're going to lean to want to do certain things. And they're not there. There's nothing in place. There's only things that are in place to reinforce their own views. There's nothing in place to challenge them. And that's a problem. Big problem. Today. I want to talk about something that's been on the minds of many Americans lately, energy independence. With rising energy prices and geopolitical tensions, it's more important than ever for our country to be self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs. And that's where Deepwell Services comes in. They're a company that's not only dedicated to delivering top-notch services to the oil and gas industry, but they're also committed to the goal of American energy independence. With their cutting-edge technology and expert team of professionals, they're helping to unlock new sources of domestic energy and reduce our dependence on foreign oil. But that's not all. Deepwell Services is also a great American company that's hiring like crazy right now. And they're not just looking for anyone. They're seeking out talented and hardworking individuals who want to join their team and make a difference. And with competitive salaries and benefits, it's a great opportunity to not only work for a patriotic company, but also build a rewarding career in the energy sector. So if you're looking for a job with purpose and meaning, or if you're simply passionate about American energy independence, then you should definitely check out Deepwell Services. Visit their website at deepwellservices.com to learn more about their company and career opportunities. And so how how do you measure the you know the hidden Trump voter? I mean because if you've been involved in politics since Donald Trump has been involved in politics as a major player, you know that there is a significant percentage, I would say, of conservative Donald Trump supporters who don't like to talk about it and come hell or high water, they aren't talking about it on the phone. And so having run two campaigns in Pennsylvania, I know that that is almost always underestimated in polling. They don't. And by the way, uh, Rich, this is also at a time where trust in our institutions are at an all time low. The the FBI, uh, everything that happened with covid and the CDC, um, this sort of what the woke mind virus has penetrated into all our institutions and has compromised trust in all sorts of ways. But because of that, people don't want to talk on the phone to anyone and talk about their political views when if those views become public, you know, they could lose their job in some yeah. cases. So there, there's a, it, it's not easy, but there are a couple of things that I think they, 
think we're doing that is helpful. And followers know this. So we have what we call the social bias indicators. And basically every survey will ask people a series of questions about whether they're comfortable talking about their political views, such as who are you going to vote for? And we'll measure them and see. I'm not sure there's any way to totally account for it. And we're not going to put our thumb on the scale. We just hope that we can possibly identify how big of a social bias there may be. So if we're off, you know, in Trump support or any candidate support by a few points, at least we can look back and say, you know what? Uh, 40% told us that they were very uncomfortable being honest in this question. And we'll say that. How, how comfortable are you speaking with your friends? family members, co-workers, strangers, your neighbors. And we also asked, the last one is pollsters. How comfortable are you right now being honest? And I'll tell you, you know, I thought under Biden, maybe we would see a little bit of a correction, but it's not true because you're right. It's not Trump who did it. It's the institutions who did it and the media who constantly reinforce you're a bad person if you hold these views. So we look at it like that. But also a big part of this, Sean, is, again, those modes that the day of live caller to the cell phone, to the landline has got to end. Uh, you're going to reach more educated people like that that are more, much more comfortable. You're not going to get the steel worker in Allegheny County or Western Pennsylvania. You're not; they're just not going to talk to you if you do reach them online, or maybe you send them a, a text message. And you have to reassure them that your responses are anonymous; they're confidential. Oh, and by the way, you have some time to finish the survey. You don't have to complete it right now. So we have a a number of things that we've developed over time. But at the end of the day, look at what happened in Kentucky. Cameron won by 30 points next to Kelly Craft. Uh, Nobody predicted that, right? That's just the way it is sometimes. It's just, and that largely came from populated urban areas, Louisville, the suburbs outside of the excerpts, right? Outside of urban areas, that actually tends to be where we find a lot of the social bias. You would think it comes from rural areas and that's, you know, where Republicans get their, their support. But actually when it comes to this, this new brand of Republicanism, it's people in the suburbs and in, and in cities or excerpts next to cities. They don't want to tell you, they don't want to be honest. And that's where we call them signals. They throw us signals, right? So it's a very high percentage. You say they're uncomfortable right now. The highest signals are in the excerpts. And, uh, and and in normal suburbs. That is that is fascinating, man. So let's talk about, let's do a postmortem on 2020 because I feel yeah. like many pundits, or let's actually, let's we can do 2020, but we, like I, I, let's talk 2022 for just a second. Because I, I want to get your take on, you know, the outcome of many of those races. You look at any pundit, they would say, oh, there's going to be a red wave. Uh, they also trot out, I think, the tired cliche. Well, there's a, you know, the party in the White House usually suffers in the midterms. And if, you know, Democrat Joe Biden's in the White House, it means that he's going to get crushed in these midterm races. And after all the election changes in 2020 in a post-COVID yeah. world, with especially in swing states, using my state in his example with the no excuse mail-in ballot law in place, it completely changed the way that we conduct elections here with an automatic opt-in. And what I mean by that for the viewers and listeners is that in Pennsylvania, they changed the law so that you know if you request a mail-in ballot, you can check that automatic opt-in box and get a ballot mailed to your door in every election for the rest of your life. Yep. And they did that during the highest presidential turnout 
in in American history in 2020. And so the idea that, well, you know, the man, the party in the White House usually suffers in the midterms, that that is gone. That conventional wisdom is gone because that enthusiasm, if you have a, a you know, a, a smoothly oiled ballot chasing machine, which the Democrats do in almost every swing state, that yeah. conventional wisdom is gone because their turnout is always going to be the floor of what it was. 2020 was the floor and that was a pretty damn high turnout election. So all these pundits said that conservatives were going to crush it. Republicans were going to crush it in the midterms. Um, conservatives didn't. And in a state like Pennsylvania, we end up, you know, electing a turnip in John Fetterman. So uh, <laughs> what happened? Yeah, there, there are a couple of things. And it's it's almost like you really can't talk about 2022 unless you talk about 2020, because they completely changed the nature of American elections. And Republicans went into this thing thinking it was a game of persuasion. The numbers looked good. All of the ingredients for a red wave were there. And basically the infrastructure that Democrats had in place from 2020, which was not pushed back, uh, which was not rolled back. Uh, you know, there was a fight over whether or not we should even bother talking about it. Right. That they carried forward. And while they didn't harvest 81 million votes across the, the country, they harvested them when they where they needed to. And Republicans wound up winning the popular vote, but barely taking the House and and underperformance in the Senate is uh, an understatement. A blew it badly. Uh, Scott, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit surprised. Some take somebody like Herschel Walker in Georgia. It still was really, really close, even though Warnock was paying $40 an hour to go out and harvest ballots and Walker was not. And Republicans didn't see that. They, they got completely blindsided by it. Uh, but they there really does need to be some plan moving forward because you said it's the floor. It's the truth. And we're seeing that's in place. So taking in consideration that that infrastructure is still in place, we're seeing un- ridiculous, unprecedented levels of people, percentages of people are telling us in 2024, I'm certain I'm going to vote. Normally, we're in the 60s right now, maybe, you know, 62 percent would say I'm certain to vote. We're already in the 70s. In some places, it's 80s. We're going to have a monstrous turnout, whether it's harvested or not. Um, and, and that's why I think, you know, the well, I'll leave that for another discussion, I guess, or another question. But there is no doubt it was an article in Real Clear Politics a couple of days ago, and they nailed it. Democrats had that where they needed to have it. And normally, pundits thinking that Republicans have a more efficient midterm vote, they're more enthusiastic, their voters vote at higher turnouts in off-cycle elections. All of that went by the wayside because Democrats still had this infrastructure in place. And they do it through third parties, by the way. It's not done through the DNC. You know, so you have Rona McDaniel out there talking on Hannity. I need money to build this infrastructure. Democrats didn't build it through the DNC. So I don't know how at this point, this late in the game, the RNC would even think that they could catch up. This has to be done through third party entities because they know their areas better than any national organization, you know, potentially could. Uh, but again, Sean, that's the that that really is the kicker is that the all of the ingredients, it was there. They had, you know, they all they had to do was realize what happened in 20 and adjust how they think about winning elections because it's no longer a game of persuasion. Like I said before, when early vote starts, it's like, you know, a race at the Olympics. The gun goes off 
and it's the chase to go get those ballots. It's a, it's a race to harvest as many ballots as you can, and Republicans didn't do it, with the exception of some congressional candidates who, who actually did see it. Come Mark Molinaro, great job on the ground. You know, somebody like that. But for the most part, nationally, it was bad. They're I mean, totally you're exactly right on... S- you're exactly right, Rich, on so many different points uh, from the DNC not actually doing it themselves, but but working with third party groups or or uh, nonprofits to get the job done. Um, and you talk about it being a race and persuasion not being, you know, that big of a thing anymore, um, uh. because really, it's just a matter of like in a state like Pennsylvania, where you have 67 counties, divide that down to the precinct level. The Democrats are so surgical that they'll say, OK, we need you know, X number of ballots from this precinct in order for us to win. And they have that down at the precinct level all across the state. And so if you got an Excel document, you know, it's not necessarily about running millions of dollars worth of commercials, even though the Democrats will still do that because they don't want for money uh, or donations or contributions from their side. It's it's not about even necessarily getting on a debate stage. It's not it's not about any of that. It's not about persuasion. It's about playing the game better and, uh, you know, proof positive of this point rich was in the 2022 race with fetterman versus oz in the debate one debate right but by the time that debate had taken place john fetterman already had like 475,000 early votes cast for him which it's a separate conversation and i think it ultimately an indictment on early voting because how many of those people would have likely changed their vote or voted you know voted for somebody different if they knew Fetterman was in the cognitive state that he was, you know, so Republicans for the longest time. And I say this as somebody who's been there on the ground and run campaigns as an outsider. I can tell you that Republicans focus on running campaigns and still that mindset shift has this. This hasn't changed. They focus on running great campaigns. Some do, some don't. But what Democrats focus on is winning elections and election law changes in each state. So to your point, these these laws are changing all the time. And for the longest time, it was Mark Elias, the the DNC attorney who was leading the charge on redistricting and other election laws uh, in different battleground states. Republicans did not have an answer for that. Not not an answer at all. And again, here in Pennsylvania was ground zero for that. And this latest redistricting, you know, Mark Elias had, had filed a motion to challenge the map that was drawn in the Pennsylvania legislature, which was the constitution, according to our constitution, the constitutional way to draw a, a redistricting map through the legislature, yeah. get it approved by the court. Um, Mark Elias filed an emergency motion, a King's Bench petition for them to take it up at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And even though that was struck down, he still had an opportunity to address it with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court prior to the 2022 cycle. And guess whose map the radical Pennsylvania Supreme Court adopted? His map, the Carter map, which was a Democrat gerrymander, although you didn't hear that talked about on the media at all. The point the point I'm trying to make is the Democrats never sleep when it comes to this stuff, Rich. That's this is all they do. They have people that are dedicated to this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yet you have Ron McDaniel on Hannity saying, I need money to set up these organizations. It's like, by the way, 100 percent right, Rich. It's already too late for 2024. It's already too late. Especially if you're going to try to do it in a centralized way that she's talking about. So a lot of these groups in 2020, when we look back at all of this, these were third party groups. And this uh, the donor element to this is big as well, which is that if you go to a Republican donor and say, you know, listen, uh, we need a half a million dollars to start 
to boot just to clean some voter rolls in this area exactly. to make sure that this database latency problem that the RNC has is fixed just in this particular, forget about nationwide. That's not even a task you can comprehend yet, but you have to start in these areas. You know, the, the, Joe Biden won the election with seven counties, folks. That's it. Uh, seven counties won him the election. So they should have been all over this already. And instead, they're still having the same tired arguments and donors are still giving for things like, let's face it, you know, I want to be able to call the candidate. So it's an access contribution or I'm going to start a pack that does this to back that guy. Maybe runs ads. That is not how you win elections anymore. And they're going to waste their money on that stuff instead of building the uh, it's not even a get out the vote. It's something totally new. It's it is a gathering infrastructure. It's a gather the vote, not get out the vote. Um, And donors don't want to hear it. And I can tell you that from experience. They don't yet understand what what Democratic donors do. Democratic donors, mega donors, they'll get their checkbook out in a second, Sean. If you come to them with a plan, this is how I'm going to harvest an additional 30,000 votes in this county. Then they will get their checkbook out and make it happen, not Republicans. And that's going to have to change if Republicans want to be competitive. Uh, But Uh, yeah, and then also, I can't say enough about the database latency. I have taken a lot of flack as a pollster working with left-wing vendors. Well, their data's better. So I want to have the most accurate poll that I I can possibly conduct. I'm going to work with the vendors that have the more accurate data. I'm not going to sit there and every 10 calls I make get the wrong person. I'm t- you know, so that's how bad it's become an increasing problem with Republican campaigns calling Big Data Poll, emailing us over at Big Data Poll. Hey, can you scrub our list? You know, and we do what, what are called matches and we may find an address and say, you know, so and so moved out of here four years ago. This is now this person and we'll fix it. That is becoming an increasing uh, you know, an increasing job that we do that we never intended to do. And that's because of how bad Republican latency issues are. It's it's incredible. I mean. Though so you're exactly right with Republican donors, and yeah. I've seen it again. I've seen it myself firsthand. You know, and and what I see is Republican donors like to see how their money is being spent. You know, it was my always it was always like my personal rule that 85 percent of every nickel that I raised went to running a campaign. That meant getting commercials on TV, sending out mail, doing things that to reach voters, not to going not going to some like high paid consulting firm, not insane operational, uh, insane operational cost with staff. Like as, as anybody that's worked for my campaign would tell you, we had so many volunteers that were just ready, willing, able, enthused to actually work with the campaign. But a lot of these donors, Rich, they want to see their money spent on commercials. And and the simple fact of the matter is in a state like Pennsylvania, where Republicans are running, like I think we were still down uh, to the Democrats by 450,000 voter registrations. I mean, the, the Democrats don't need a single Republican vote to win in the state of Pennsylvania. That's right. And yet the Republicans have zero uh, voter registration operation taking place. Uh, and I mean, like there are some there are some groups out there doing, you know, a little here, a little there. But there's not a concerted effort to close the veg- uh, voter registration deficit whatsoever. And so if I went to a, me- a GOP mega donor and I said, 
I need, you know, $500,000 to narrow the voter registration deficit one year from now by 50,000. They would probably say no, because it's really, really difficult, unsexy work. And it's hard to see a bang for your buck there. Perfectly stated. Democrat donors don't worry about that. The Democrats never want for money. And and it's again, seeing I'm fourth generation from Pennsylvania. I know this state better than anybody else that lives here. It's unbelievably complicated to run a campaign here just because you have blue collar Allegheny. You have union Democrats who are, by and large, switching to the GOP if they have the right message. You have one point two million independents in this state that you have to make the case for. And then you've got Republicans who are fractured between, you know, America first Republicans and more traditional Republicans, which I want to get into your latest polling data about that. Um, But the GOP just seems like we're behind the curve on so many different things. It's like the definition of insanity, you know, you know, keep doing the same thing over and over again, yet we expect a different result. And what's upsetting to me, Rich, is that in 2022, we had just amazing candidates. And and we talk about, you hear a lot of these, you know, traditional pundits talk about candidate quality as if that's the only thing that matters. And juxtaposed to that, at the same time, if they're anti-Trump, it's like, well, look at all these Trump-endorsed candidates who lost. That's all Trump does is lose. Well, that's a bunch of BS, too. (laughs) Um, Because if you look at somebody like Carrie Lake, who I think is immensely talented, I think if if Maricopa County actually conducted their elections in a lawful way, she would be the governor of Arizona. No questions asked. Like, what they did in Maricopa County is disgraceful. But- I mean, I think you could make the argument of Carrie Lake being a America first Trump Republican. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. And I, you know, I mean, 100 percent agree with what you said. I testified at her original trial because I, Sean, I have never as a pollster seen what I saw, you know, and you're instructed to give, uh, you know, your response because we conduct exit polls as well. And I've, I've conducted exit polls all over the country. Never saw what I saw, which was this major disparity in the completion rate with people who voted early, even if it was in uh, in person or they dropped it off, and those who voted on election day. And uh, what I was trying to explain to the judge is there is no reason why 90 plus percent of early voters completed their questionnaire, but 70 plus or 70, actually, uh, I think it was 71 on the dot of election day voters completed their questionnaire other than they intended to vote, but didn't vote, could not vote. And that has got to mean something. You can't just, you know, and by, by the way, we were hearing 15 minutes after the polls closed, we were hearing from people in the exit poll. Yeah, you know, I tried to vote before work. This is crazy. Something's going wrong. The machines are down. I've got to go to work. Maybe I'll come back later. And they never came back, Sean. So what happened in Maricopa was third world disgraceful. I, I, I would never testify at a trial like that, I never even would have thought that I'd be, uh, you know, somebody who had a role in something like that. And I certainly don't want to be a court expert ever, you know, but um, <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> I did it because the people who were on the other end of that phone, it's, it's they just it's so they, it's they so frustrating. Disgrace. Yeah, and so so. So it's fair to you to say Carrie Lake is an America first Trump Republican. Well, I'm so, real so then I. Yep. Yes, she is. And so let me let me Adam Laxalt. I like I love Adam Laxalt. He's a great guy. I mean, many people would say that Adam Laxalt is a more establishment Republican. Yeah. Now, from Nevada, Carrie Lake from Arizona, obviously two different states. 
but they both came up short. So is this really or should the Republican Party or any of our pundits be talking about candidate quality or Trump candidate versus more establishment candidate? When I I think, again, obviously candidate quality matters a little bit, but I think playing the game is so much more important and focusing on winning election, having a good ground game, ballot chasing operation. Look at John Fetterman. Candidate quality didn't matter whatsoever (laughs) with John Fetterman, right? Look at Joe Biden. Candidate quality did not matter. Those two people are proof that it's about playing the game. It's about the system, right? And uh, O'Day, by the way, Senate candidate in Colorado, was not a Trump Mm -hmm. uh, guy. In fact, you know, distanced himself quite a bit. And he got creamed worse than uh, we have been beaten in that state in a long time. So Mm -hmm. in in a cycle that was supposed to have favored Republicans, right? Republicans. So, so much for that. Uh, And and there were congressional candidates as well that you could make that comparison to. Alan Fung did not win Rhode Island, too. Connecticut 5 was lost. I mean, we could just go down the board. You know, there were more traditionalists and and MAGA Republicans that lost. And there's another reason that they lost and what you're pointing out. Years ago, when I was telling you about, you know, developing those models for fun like a dork, candidate quality (laughs) used to mean a lot more. Right. Because it meant what's their appeal? How well can they fundraise? That's what went in in our modeling. Things like that went into candidate quality. I obviously, you know, I mean, I don't know how you can argue that candidate quality, of course, still matters, but it's not what it used to be. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, Gibbs just got beat out in Michigan three because he didn't have the, the ground operation that uh, Hillary Shelton had. Um, you know, somebody like it um, uh, in Virginia seven, for instance, uh, and Virginia two, they should not have been that close in that result. What was the difference? Well, one had a robust ballot harvesting operation. The other one did not, right? In Pennsylvania 5, where you are, great candidate, David Galuch, uh, not at all, uh, you know, to be seen as too, you know, an election denier. He has a great veteran story. He had a great biography. Candidate quality does not get any better than that. But it, you, it's hard to do anything with that if all of the drop boxes are in urban parts of the state in Delco and what little bit of Philadelphia you have. All of the harvesting operation benefited the Democrats in the Democratic areas. So it was hard to even make a dent there. At the end of the day, it's easy to make these claims because it fits an easy media narrative. And we're in the middle of a primary. And you know anyone who's not named Trump wants to talk about that because You're looking for, you know, an argument to make the primary voters why you shouldn't pick Donald Trump. But I think that does a disservice to the movement going forward because everyone's going to continue to lose, Sean. This is what I'm trying to explain to everybody. Everybody is going to lose. It doesn't matter if Trump's the candidate. It doesn't matter if DeSantis is the candidate. If Republicans don't get their act together, they're going to continually come up short with these, you know, very heartbreaking races, uh, losses that they uh, in races they should have won. Right. That's what I mean, you're really yeah. Look, yeah, you're exactly right. And I want to talk about 2024 and your latest polling that just came out today. But DeSantis, obviously, he's going to be declaring for president very, very soon. Um, talk about, you know, a Republican governor. I like Ron DeSantis. I think he's been a great governor for Florida. He's done things. I mean, I, you one can even make the argument that he's largely responsible for why Republicans have a majority in the House of Representatives with the way that he took control and took command of redistricting in that state. But 
you know, Ron example, uh, Dude, Ron DeSantis is a good example. for him, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you look at Ron DeSantis and what he did in Florida, it's like when Republican governor in power he changes the election law to the point where like he does everything that he can to be a great governor, uh, embrace the Constitution, you know, election integrity. Uh, he's advanced election integrity measures in the state of Florida. My, and my point is, I say all that to say it benefited him in the state of Florida. Like we're yeah. in the state of Pennsylvania. The situation's completely different. Totally We've different. had a Democrat, gov- Democrat governor in Tom Wolf, a Democrat governor in Josh Shapiro. They wield the power on whether or not we change our system here. So Republicans who are sitting back and saying, I don't like mail-in, I don't want to do a ballot chasing operation in the state of Pennsylvania. We don't need that. We can beat them on enthusiasm. We can beat them on election day vote. It's just not the case. We have to play the game like they do. We have to play it better than they do, Rich. And then we have to win. We have to take power. And then we can change the system just like Ron DeSantis did in that's Florida. Right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You got to work with the system that you have. Right. And by the way, I mean, you know, for people who, who dismiss uh, the impact of some of the things that you just said, Firing and removing Brenda Snipes from Broward County, which is a law Texas Republicans are basically trying to give the power to the governor that Ron DeSantis and every other uh, governor of Florida has. You look at locally in Florida, it's a supervisor of election. This person is a continuous problem. There's always questions about fraud or irregularities or whatever is going on. Regardless, she has a 730 deadline to meet a reporting deadline. How much mail-in vote do you have? How many election votes do you have? And constantly missing it, you can fire her and remove her. This is what they're going to give to Texas. It looks like it's going to pass if it survives court challenges. But it had a major impact because anybody who thinks that the Republican share in Broward County suddenly skyrocketed by double digits when they removed <laughs> Brenda Snipes. If you think that's it's, you know unrelated, <laughs> you're naive, right? So even yeah. Trump, even Trump, uh, you know, Republicans would end up with 17 to 23 percent of the vote share, and in 20 because he had removed uh, because DeSantis had removed Brenda Snipes. Uh, I don't think anybody thought that Trump would get that many votes in Broward County or that share of the vote, and he did. Right. So, I mean, this stuff matters a lot, but you have to work with what you have. And in your neck of the woods out by you, uh, we were working with races and local races to try to make this case and to come up with basically experiments that we're running to show people it is worth the money. So we had those school board races in Central Bucks and we were able to we didn't win it, but we were able to increase the share of Republican early vote. Uh, with with not, by the way, if I had my wish, wish list of everything I would have liked to do, they're not very you know well funded in li- little races like that or local races like that. But if I had my wish list, we would have done even better. So, Sean, we didn't have to rely on this deluge of Election Day votes to help us, you know, in the primary. We didn't have to rely on that. We of course, we wanted it and we got it. But it was the difference, you know, it made a lot of difference when you can increase your early vote by 20%. It makes a huge difference. Uh, So they're working with the laws that they have. And when they, you know, put that work in, it's going to pay, you know, dividends down down the long run. And then you can change the law. But right now it is what it is. So you got to talk to me about what you see in 2024. But before you do, I will uh, give you my thoughts. Um, Now, I think most people would know publicly that that I'm a, a Trump guy. And the answer to that question is, yes, of course I am. Um, 
uh, loyalty to me is, is, is a shocking. Well, it's actually not a thing. It's actually not shocking to me, but loyalty really isn't a thing to most people in it's, politics. It's so true. But <laughs> our party, our that's why I think Truman the said if you want you, loyalty Sean. in politics. Yeah. <laughs> if you want the loyalty are- in politics, Truman said, get a dog, right? Um <laughs> And I and I understand that, but I think that as a party, the Republican Party would be much better off if we were more loyal to people who helped us when we first started out. President Trump was that to me. He's always been good to me. I'm I'm, I'm good friends with with his sons and his family. So yes, uh, I have President Trump's back um, because of that. But I also I also like Ron DeSantis. I don't I don't really have a bad thing to say about him. Other than that, I will say this: I would say it. You know, when Ron was out there. And he was like doing his book tour and he was asked about the polling and he said, well, yeah. I'm not really in the race yet. And I thought like, come on, man. Yeah, come on. Yeah, yes, you are. I don't like I don't like those political answers. I hate that stuff. I hate political gamesmanship. Um, the, the obvious answer was, of course, you're in the race. Like you could have had a better answer for that. I didn't like the idea that he was out there basically campaigning for president while on a book tour. A lot of people do it like this is just me personally, by the way. And I'm not again, I'm not trashing Ron DeSantis. I'm not. Um, but it looks like President Trump, if you, even if you look at the real clear politics average, um, is he running away with this thing? I mean, he's well over 50 percent now. Yes. And, and with what, like eight different people in the race, eight or nine different people in the race. I mean, I think the more people that are in the race, the more it benefits President Trump as well. I mean, it just feels like. He's running away with it, you know, and 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 again, you're you're allowed to have your opinion. Like some of these people who, uh, you know, if you say one bad thing about the governor, they flip out. It's not even a bad thing. Like it's an observation. Their logic that they based this run on is flawed and it has been flawed. They have been telling donors about it for a year, which, by the way, I don't know if you you noticed, but. We had basically just reported what donors told us a year ago, and he was publicly stating he wasn't going to run. But the donors were, of course, hearing Trump will be indicted. So, uh, you know, he's going to sink then. And uh, the second one was, if I can get him one on one, I will beat him. This is the problem with, you know, and not everyone's a statistician, Sean, but if you're above 50 percent. That argument isn't going to work. You know, that they really believe that a majority of Republican voters were ready to move on from Donald Trump. And they looked at the environment after the midterms when everyone was blaming Trump for under uh, the underperformance. And they looked at that and they thought, okay, he's vulnerable. This is what we're talking about. Here's evidence. Even in our polling, and we were less bullish on Trump than others until recently, uh, we had him with softer support. The closest we ever had DeSantis is Trump was at 43. DeSantis was at 31. Something has changed since then. And so you're asking if he's running away with it. This is what I would tell people who are saying, wait till an announcement. A, they already knew he was running. The poll, the, the, the poll we released in Florida, the voters were very clear. I mean, stop. We love you, but don't insult our intelligence. We love you as governor. We want Trump back. Let's just shake hands and move on. You're down in your own state and losing a primary in your own state is a career ender. It's over for you if that happens. Uh, And that looks to be, Sean, like that's going to happen. Trump is way ahead in Florida. And at one time, DeSantis was very close, but it never was because DeSantis had a large share of the vote. It was simply because Trump had fallen a little bit and there was some people who are unsure. 
I really think this is where this is the biggest problem DeSantis has. And I think it's going to translate to the other candidates. The war, the question over the war in Ukraine is a major issue for primary voters. They are non-interventionist voters at this point. And when Tucker asked Ron DeSantis for that statement, and he gave what, what, what really was a MAGA statement, the statement that you need to put out if you're going to run for the Republican presidential nomination, he got flack from donors. He got flack from you know Fox News, the media. And he flip-flopped. And then he didn't know where to go. He didn't know where he was. And people started dredging up statements about him saying, we need to stop Putin. We have to arm the Ukrainians. Uh, there's, I mean, there's even a letter out there with him pushing then Secretary of State John Kerry for the coup. You know, so people had this doubt, this distrust. He's a great governor, but on the national stage, why would we take a risk on somebody we don't know you know, we just don't know where he's going to stand on these issues. And from what I'm seeing, I don't think I can trust him. And it's like they like him. But on these issues that really determine who's going to be the Republican nominee, he lost that trust. And that is the beginning. If you go back and look at the trend, the Tucker flip-flop is the beginning of DeSantis's decline. And then unfortunately, a week or two later, the indictment happened and he bungled how he handled that. And I think that reinforced. I, I, a lot of pundits and others out there are saying, that's it. That was the moment he got hurt. It's not. He was hurt with the statement on Ukraine. And then that just reinforced people who kind of went back to unsure, you know, and, and that when they saw that, they, that was a confirmation to them that, oh man, okay, that's it. I'm back to Trump. So now these are people who are decided and it's not, and we were talking about a game of persuasion. You're no longer, it's much more difficult. There's a reason why nobody's ever had a polling lead like Trump and not gone on to be the nominee. Hillary Clinton in 20, uh, in 2008, never got near Trump's levels and she only touched 50 in Gallup once. Everyone else had her, had her around 40. So it's not a comparable example that people keep using. Nobody has lost with Trump's polling levels. And the reason is, is, is simple. You're no longer talking about winning people over. You have to now change their minds. You can't, I mean, this idea you can get them head to head is not true. If you get them head to head, you're going to lose 65, 35, maybe even worse. You have to change people's minds again. And these are people who, you know, if you ask them, Sean, they said, I was undecided already two months ago. Now I'm decided. I don't know that they're going to budge. You know, the old voice of Rush Limbaugh is in my head. You know, you can't, no outside influence is going to tear these voters away from Trump. Only Trump could do it. And I really think, you know, they, the truth is, even when he was the lowest he ever was at 43, their argument was laughable because you, you're telling me you're going to present, you're going to prevent him from getting 7%, you know, and that's all he was away from 50 it's an enormous task, Sean. And it's not, you know, one poll a month he had that level. He has always been this strong. So I, I just, I got to tell you, it, I, it's not looking good for anyone not named Donald Trump. It's getting very yeah. difficult. It's it's everything you, everything you say is so interesting, Rich. And I think, you know, a lot of DeSantis folks, especially as influencers and stuff, yeah. will say, well, hey, this isn't 2016. And, and certainly, you know, times change they're right this isn't 2016 but donald trump is i think a once in a lifetime political figure whether you're a republican or a democrat by the way 
And, you know, I think people make mistakes all the time, uh, the pundit class, of associating the popularity of Trump-endorsed candidates with the popularity of Donald Trump himself. They're two totally different things. Now, a Trump endorsement is very, very important. I mean, you know, I think Dr. Oz probably won the primary in 2022 in the state of Pennsylvania by 900 votes precisely because he had Donald Trump's endorsement to get across the goal line. Ron DeSantis barely beat a meth addict back when he ran. Um, (laughs) And it was was it was Donald and Donald Trump was the one that got him across the goal line. He did. And and so Donald Trump brings out the craziest cross section of voters that that I have I've ever seen. You know, you can't pry away some of these union Democrats from voting for for Donald Trump. You just can't, especially in Western Pennsylvania. I was talking to a union leader of a building trade union leader here in Western PA saying, you know, they worked really hard to try to get people not to vote for Donald Trump, but they couldn't convince people to do it, you know, because I think and here's why. Here's why. I think that authenticity really, really, it's the coin of the realm in American politics today, whereas a lot of Republicans don't like Trump's comportment. Uh, They don't like maybe sometimes how he they don't like maybe sometimes his bombast, um, but but they they know that even if they disagree with those things, that the man is who he is. Yeah. And when you see other politicians and the example you use in Ukraine and the in the state, the DeSantis statement to Tucker and then the, the subsequent flip flop, I think people think, whoa, I can't really trust this guy. Um, whoa, there's somebody behind the curtain that's maybe yep. making decisions. Well, I can tell you this about Donald Trump, having known him and knows, known his inner circle for a long time. Nobody pulls the strings for Donald <laughs> Trump. Nobody. Um, he is who he is. Yep. And and sure is. I just think. Yeah, I, I look, I, I think that do you think I guess I'll ask you this. Do you think other candidates now for the 24 race on the Republican side are getting in this race like Tim Scott because they smell blood in the water? They they don't think DeSantis is as strong as maybe he once was. Yes. And uh, Glenn Youngkin, we could probably expect him as well. I mean, get a call from a lot of donors because they want to know, does this guy have a prayer and, you know what kind of snowballs chance in, you know, hell to win. So we uh, get a lot of calls and, you know, Glenn Youngkin has been running around for weeks going, I told you he wasn't ready for prime time. Tim Scott has a little bit of an advantage, even though Glenn Youngkin, I think probably would be, um, you know, once he gets on the trail, you know, he'd probably be uh, an attractive candidate. Tim Scott, uh, unfortunately, nice guy, but he's not saying the message at least, uh, Youngkin knows some of the bases message. He knows what they want to hear. Tim Scott doesn't. He's speaking to a very small, uh, you know, section of the Republican Party that, frankly, demographically speaking, is dying out. They will. They're older, and they're just. There's no young support for that wing of the Republican Party. So over time, it literally will disappear. But Tim Scott also has, because of his committee assignments. You know, Oracle, by the way, the head of Oracle, also a lot of Wall Street guys. I mean, because he's been a basically a I don't want to say a permanent fixture. That's not fair. But he has been very responsive to them. It's just part of the role he plays in the Senate. They like him and they also view him as and he's a very likable guy. And anybody who meets him in person, I don't know if you have Sean, but he's a super nice guy. I mean, he's hard to dislike. You may disagree with him, but he's hard to dislike. Um, they're going to look around, but I'm, at this point, it's really 
I don't want to say futile, but I mean, I don't know what else, what other word for it. There is no other candidate. DeSantis, I do believe, had the best chance to pull some of Trump's own vote away from him. But the problem is he didn't know what lane to get in. And that's why the and, and that exposes that you're not authentic. When you when you flip flop like that, you're telling MAGA that you can't be trusted on these issues. They're already skeptical of you. And you're kind of telling the moderate lane that you're opposing to be MAGA instead of trying to just be in that moderate lane. So you know, Nikki Haley, for whatever people can say about her, she's been very consistent. I'm in this lane. This is, you know, I, the, the president and I agree on a lot, but we also disagree here, here, and here. And that's why I'm in a different lane. Harry Anton basically echoed something that I had said. He is 100%. There is no, there's no lane for DeSantis to go in and dominate. So he can't go in Trump's lane, which is more conservative, which is uh, non-white, by the way, more non-white, more diverse, more dynamic. He can't go into that MAGA lane and dominate Trump because you can't out-Trump Trump. You just can't do it, right? So that leaves you with the moderate lane, which if we're just talking numbers here, is about, if you're lucky, if they're lucky, is going to be about 30% moderate and liberal. 70% is going to be conservative. And Trump is approaching in some polling and us, he has surpassed it. Uh, super majority support among conservatives in the party. So, th- you know, we always talk about this in terms of lanes as if this is a horse race, but it really is true. Where's his lane? Where's anybody's lane? There isn't a liberal lane. It's 5%, right? So that you could theoretically get some conservatives, put that together with the moderates. But as a slew of polls came out today showed, there isn't, it's not big enough. So even if you get the guy head to head, you just the best you could hope to do is like 70, 30. And honestly, that may collapse as time goes on. It may, because I, I think that they're going to I have always been of the mind they were going to indict him and that it would backfire. And I think because Alvin Bragg was the first one to do it, he hurt people who may otherwise have stronger cases because now everyone's just going to see it as a fake indictment. They're trying to stop this guy. And it isn't 2016. It isn't 2015. But it's also not 2020 either. And the truth is, Trump was, he is much stronger now than he ever was in 2015. When he was leading, he was leading with 35% of the vote, folks. Go look it up on Real Clear Politics. 35, right. 40%. Uh, never 60, 55. The truth is the CNN polls and others, they're coming around to where people like myself and Emerson College, Morning Consult, others have been. We've been two different universes of pollsters up until this point. But I would argue they're following our trend. And we had a primary in Kentucky, which gave us a chance to see who was you know, more closely reflected. The actual, the actual sentiment of the electorate. And those of us who are now more bullish on Trump saw Cameron running away with that thing. Not really a close race compared to others who did think it was a closer race and that maybe Kraft could even catch him at the end. I mean, folks, that was a serious argument at 24 hours before the election. If he, if she can get DeSantis's endorsement, maybe she doesn't eclipse Cameron, but she can nip him at the heels and we can create a narrative. And that really mm-hmm. was their thinking. She got crushed. So it tells us that those like Emerson, myself, we're closer. Trump is much, much stronger than some of the, you know, the, the CNN and others are showing. And it's very difficult to bring him down from there.
Very difficult. God, it's so, it's so interesting, Rich, because, it, you know, I think many voters, you know, it, many voters that I come into contact with believe that President Trump was treated very unfairly on the campaign trail in 16. Uh, he had four years of his presidency basically stolen from him yep. with one hoax after the next and all That's this right. impeachment stuff. It was all completely made up. And I think the Durham report, you know, even though I'm disappointed with the actual outcome, what's the what are the action steps after the fact? It shows people that maybe were on the fence that were maybe cons- more traditional conservatives. It shows them that, oh, my gosh, this guy, this this was a hoax all along. This this guy is being unfairly targeted yeah. and everybody's against him. And so I think that just makes his poll numbers go up. You know, people that and, and what I mean Rich, is that 2018 is a good example where the Russia hoax just started to come to fruition. Republicans took a shellacking in that midterm election precisely. And I think Connor Lamb was a good example of this. He was swept into power in a Republican district, I think, because there were a lot of Republicans, very moderate Republicans, which there are a lot of in Pennsylvania, more moderate Republicans thinking, oh, my gosh, is the president a Russian asset? You know, when you talk about election interference, that hoax was the definition of election interference because the Democrats took the majority in the House and the Senate, I think, in 2018. If memory, they definitely in the House. Not sure about the Senate. But but the point is, I think many people realize that that's all that was completely bogus now. And so to your point, Trump is stronger now than he ever was before with all of these BS hoaxes behind him. And so when you look forward at things, Rich, transition to this latest polling that you had come out today, um, what I thought was really interesting was the difference between a percentage of Republicans who are who consider themselves America first versus more traditional Republicans. Can you talk a little bit about that? This is why we wanted to. And, you know, that that's for uh, just, you know, for full disclosure, uh, John O'Shea, Kay Granger currently represents this district. Uh, but she's, you know, she's 80 years old. Uh, she's probably uh, going to retire. But there will be some more moderate people who tried or at least one. There will be a moderate person next to John O'Shea, who is most definitely the America First candidate in that district. And there's a reason why I found this district interesting. Tarrant County, largest red county in the country, population-wise. But if you believe 2020, uh, if you believe everything was on the up and up, Trump barely lost it by a few thousand votes. If you believe everything was on the up and up. This district is educated. It's wealthy, right? So if you're going to beat Donald Trump, You've got to beat him in this area because we just pulled the entire state and Trump was killing him. I mean, it was 60-16, Sean, 60-16 in the Lone Star State. And a lot of that, by the way, was coming from these Hispanics. And in that poll, I got to mention this, these Hispanics who say, I'm not Republican. I'm an America first Republican, but I'm not a Republican. They really make this distinction. And they're going to come out for Trump in states like Texas, and it's going to surprise people because it's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, in this, we ask people whether or not you are an America first Republican or a traditional Republican. Which one do you identify as? And on the primary question, I really thought this is a district where I'm going to see DeSantis probably in the 30s. Why? 20% of a postgraduate degree, right? 28% have a bachelor's degree. It's an educated area and they make a lot of money. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Trump is beating him by 30, 31 points, and DeSantis is at low 20s. I, I really thought he would be at least closer to 30, if not at 30. And Trump, uh, if you're going to hold him below 50, 
this would be the district to hold them below 50. And they're not doing it. And when you ask them, where do they come down on this? 55 or really 56, if you round, say they're America first Republicans, only about a quarter say they are more like a traditionalist Republican. And if you look, this is some interesting stuff, because if you look at the 20 plus percent who said they're unsure, we we did ask other questions uh, that will be public soon. And you could see they're America first. I mean, Sean, they just don't want to say it. They're, you know, they're, wow. it goes to that social bias and that shy vote you were talking about before. They don't want to admit it because this is a very wealthy, affluent area and they know the bias. They know the stigma and they know what's the right answer here. And they're afraid to give it because they don't want to, they don't want to be looked at in a certain way. And in, more interesting, wow. white voters, obviously a majority are America first, but it's not a majority like we see with non-white. Republicans. And this district will be about 7% will be Hispanic. 83% of them chose America first over traditional Republican. 83. That's why Trump, you know, can win Zapata County. That's why he can flip star 60 plus points and we get killed. Not for nothing, but South Texas, perfect example of seats. Republicans were supposed to win. Texas 15 is a Trump plus three district. They lost it by I think almost 10 points, right? Texas 34, uh, she she was a great candidate and it's a hard district to win, but she lost it by as much as you, you know, you would expect that she would still lose it before the districts got more Republican over there. So just a total disappointment. And the fact is, Sean, those voters, if those Hispanic voters, particularly, they'll come out and if they do and Trump's on the ballot, They'll not only vote for Trump, but they will give the Republican below Trump on that ticket their support. But if they come out and Trump is not on the ballot, it's not at all guaranteed that they're going to vote Republican. And that's if you can even get them out without Trump. And that is the major problem Republicans have. I don't know how they can look back at all of these cycles, midterms, presidentials, 2012 to now and not see that they have a major turnout problem when Trump is not on the ticket. So they're, you know, the worst thing that could happen to them, is, let's say Trump isn't the nominee and something happens. The worst thing that could happen to them is the case of the missing white voter all over again, like we saw in 2012, only it's not just white. It's all of these new, younger, non-white MAGA Republicans that without a doubt will come out and vote for Donald Trump, but they will stay home like they did uh, for Mitt Romney in 12. And that's how, that's how we lost. Wow. Rich, man, it is 2024 is going to be so interesting. And, you know, of course, I'm going to be turning to you. And those of you all who are watching and listening, you should also go and trust the People's Pundit, Rich Barris. Like, what's the website? BigDatapoll.com, right? BigDatapoll.com. Best place to follow me. You know, everything we're doing is on Locals. PeoplesPundit.Locals.com, uh, which you don't, you know, you can sign up and just be a member, uh, but there's membership supporters. Anything we do from there is like the central hub, Sean. <laughs> you know, it's so a big data poll. It's cool and everything. And if we give up all those graphics and <laughs> trackers and everything there. But most of those links we'll share out to locals. Um, it's the best place to follow us. Well, awesome, Rich. I'd love to have you back, you know, six months from now or or sooner, uh, of course, based on your schedule, because I love to get your feedback and your view of the terrain. But I uh, can't thank you enough for coming on. And uh, we just really, really appreciate it, Rich. Thank you. 
And thank you for having me anytime, Sean. Enjoyed it. <laughs> All right, brother. Talk soon. All right. Take care. Okay, everybody. That's a wrap. I hope you liked the People's Pundit. I mean, I think the dude is just phenomenal. Uh, follow him on Twitter. He's he's rolling out a new poll almost on the weekly. He's always got great insight into what's happening in congressional districts all across the country, statewide races for Senate and for governor, and obviously the presidential cycle in 2024 is going to be critically important. You know, I personally think if Republicans don't win in 2024, we might not have a country left <laughs> after that. So it's a very, very important cycle. Pay attention to it. Um, Go to the website, officialshawnparnell.com. We've got Battleground Apparel there. Again, subscribe to uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I've also got a YouTube channel, but uh, what we're really putting a lot of effort into right now is our Rumble channel. Um, and really where we're at is, is why would we invest a lot of time energy, money, resources into YouTube when a year from now they could just ban my whole channel. Why not just invest all that time and energy in Rumble right now? And that's what we're doing. So go subscribe uh, to Rumble. Watch the podcast there. We break it down into super manageable clips for you. Um, And again, God bless you. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the commitment. Thank you for tuning in and watching. And God bless you all. And God bless this incredible country that we live in. Take care. Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.